Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Jason Weiner. Jason's the principal and founder at the Jason Weiner PC law firm in Boulder, Colorado. He's also the founder and chair of the Main Street Phoenix Project. A very interesting guy. I learned about Jason in my podcast EP68 with Mata Zapeda. We were talking about how hard it was, but how critical it is to find good professional help informing exotic business entities. I think we specifically were talking about hybrid cooperatives in our wide-ranging conversation about, you know, how to have business forms that don't just have maximizing short-term money-on-money return as their ethos. And that topic came up. So I looked up Jason's law firm. And I go, hell yeah, I'd definitely like to talk to this guy. So welcome, Jason. Well, thank you very much, Jim. Good to be here. That's quite an introduction. Thank you. Yeah, one of the things I found on his website, as always, of course, it'll be on our episode page, but it's nice and short, so I'll actually read it off, J-R-W-I-E-N-E-R.com. And as always, it'll be on the episode page. First thing that caught my mind was he has a section called Ethos. Lawyer, Ethos, hmm, okay. Actually, I have used lots of attorneys with good result over the years, so I'm not one of those people who bashes attorneys needlessly, but sometimes they deserve it. But I loved his ethos. Some excerpts from that is, your mission will always remain top of mind in our dealings. and We will always advise you of potential threats to your mission. I go, wow, that's pretty cool. What did you mean by that? Well, to me, I understand having lived inside of a company as both an owner and as an executive that you don't go into business as a human being just to make a return for yourself or a shareholder. Uh, it's this myth that we've uh, come to lionize and I think celebrate that you know business really is just about uh, making money. And we know that there is a deep sense of pride in one's craft or a sense of purpose in serving a community or a sense of loyalty to your workers. And so to whatever degree somebody's been doing just about anything in an organization for any measure of time, they're led by something non-financial. They're led by a mission, by a pursuit, by a purpose. And I learned really early on that that's not just the basis of a rapport between the lawyer and their client. This is really fundamentally what drives the business leader. And it's what they're thinking about. And it's what, frankly, gets them up in the morning. And it's what weighs on them uh, late into the evening. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer who empathizes and understands the position of my clients. I too am a business owner. I too am a founder. I too am a a leader and a manager. And I am led by the mission of our work. And I I put that front and center because I want to work with people. uh, And I do work with people who are led by that same visceral drive to do right by a constituency bigger and broader than themselves. 
Yeah, I love that. You know, I've been associated with many startups as a founder, as a advisor, as a director, and as an investor. I think seventeen or eighteen at last count. And I agree with you. I've never, I've never been on one yet that was purely cynical money making play. People either love their product, or they love their customers, or they love their employees, or you know, optimally some combination of the three that make really the best companies. And you know, I've always thought it to be a mistake of reality for those people who are. Selling the idea that the only purpose for an organization is to maximize its shareholder value. No company I've ever been associated with had that as its ethos, fortunately. And I think it's very important that you recognize that. Unfortunately, there are many vectors in our economy that try to move early stage companies away from their missions. Very much so. And And it's really a perversion of law as well as economic theory you know, Milton Friedman, uh, in writing a piece in you know the mid-70s in the New York Times, was articulating a value set that became doctrine out of a gross distortion of legal precedent. And in doing so, created uh, essentially an unanticipated but highly lucrative uh, connection between shareholder capitalism and venture finance. And that means today we live with this distorted reality where founders might start out to build a business, to solve a problem that they care deeply about or to address a need or a purpose. But ultimately, it's through the structures they adopt that they end up having to become cynical and pursue financial maximization. And that's strictly due to the legal constructs that, uh, that we've bought into and that we have that we that we rarely question, and so very often we're dealing with founders that have been getting conventional advice, and some have even been through traditional venture-backed startups. Uh, and those intrepid few that question the trajectory they were on, question the structures they adopted, are the folks I love working with most because they retain an open mind and a sense of spaciousness in looking at uh, the way to approach a business structure that isn't quite as extractive or myopic as the traditional Delaware C-Corp. And I believe that that's really the unanticipated product of design and the laziness of, of practice, which is that we've created a conformist culture in the law and in business practice that creates an engine for venture capital and and public markets for IPOs and for consolidation. And this is based on, I think, an underlying intellectual laziness to look at alternatives and look at tailored solutions that may be a little harder to design, but serve a more holistic purpose and one that probably makes the business more sustainable and ethical. Exactly. And I like the way you frame that as laziness. I often point out to people that fortunately in our English common law system, which is you know the United States and most of the English speaking countries, there's a remarkable amount of flexibility in what one builds into the legal underpinnings of a business entity. You don't have to you know just grab a hundred dollar Delaware C Corp or the equivalent LLC with a very generic set of operating agreements. Essentially, within very, very broad reason, if you can think of it, and it doesn't violate any obvious laws, you can cook it into your bylaws or your operating agreements or into your co-op structure or, or whatever. There's tremendous flexibility available under the English common law. Oh, there sure is. And 
not only do we have legal structures that can be suited and tailored, but we have a variety of legal structures that most folks don't even really know exist. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, we of course have the relatively uniform business corporation law, which itself is flexible despite how it may be used in practice. The limited liability company form, which again is probably the most flexible. We also have throughout the country a variety of versions of cooperative statutes and limited cooperative statutes, uh, along with, of course, public benefit corporations. We have this rich patchwork of state law that allow creative practitioners to implement uh, a wide variety of legal designs. Again, should they you know, be tolerant of creativity and risk and understanding that uh, all we can do is codify and enshrine a set of assumptions and purposes and relationships uh, and let the facts play out as they may. And I think all too often lawyers are trained to be risk averse and to do what's been most often done on the trodden path. And that is so limiting and it deprives the business community uh, and our economy, frankly, of the kind of biodiversity, as I call it, or, or economic diversity that's necessary for innovation and necessary for identifying patterns and hopefully solving some of our deepest, most entrenched social, economic, and political uh, challenges and inequities of our time. Well said, well said. Which gets actually to the next part I took out of your ethos, which is the section on democratization. When practical and appropriate, we'll advise you as to innovative ways to democratize elements of your business in governance, capital, supply, credit, and finance, and other business issues. We'll help you evaluate creative ways of distributing and sharing management, decision-making, control, wealth, and risk. Now, that's, I think, part of what you talked about, about you know, having our business enterprises be part of the solution, not just part of the problem with respect to you know, having a more equal distribution of outcomes that come from our businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, I think one of the other kind of perversions of business structures and uh, capitalism without appearing as uh, a zealot, an economic zealot, uh, one of the perversions we live with is the notion that business ownership is an endeavor of control, domination, and exercising power and dominion over people like our employees. Uh, the employment relationship is rooted in a style of fiefdom and, uh, and, and domination. And yet, you know, we're suffering with the consequences of that. We suffer with things like the lack of a social safety net. We suffer from uh, high turnover and burnout. We suffer from employment discrimination and uh, the need for collective bargaining and unions. Much of that is symptomatic of the societal harm that's done through this control and command business ownership structure. And so there is a whole realm of solution building that comes from recognizing that we're actually within an organization's four walls, within the cell walls of an organization, as some friends and colleagues of mine like to describe it, there's a lot of alignment. There's cultural alignment, there's alignment of vision, and there are different strengths and weaknesses within an organization. And what better way to tap the potential of an organization than to get everyone rowing in the same direction? Now, one way to do that is obviously through the stock option program that traditional startups use. I think that's somewhat of a cynical but helpful structure 
but to go further and to create many business owners and share ownership broadly doesn't just create an alignment of incentives. It taps into people's deepest motivations of purpose and meaning and long-term commitment that unlocks a degree of productivity and enrichment and engagement that you just can't simulate by paying people well or putting them under a non-competition covenant or uh, providing them good benefits. We need to go further and the enterprises that will solve the most deeply entrenched problems rely on long-term thinking. They rely on us to tackle deep thorny questions in a way that's based in trust, deep tr relationships and an alignment of incentives and vision that has people rowing in the same direction. We need to do away with the corporation that puts more money into enforcing its policies and in creating spiritual, energetic, philosophical alignment that gets people moving quickly and autonomously within their domain. And democratization is one meta-level construct that offers us a pathway to tapping into that potential, tapping into that engagement, and also solving the deepest, most entrenched economic woes we face, income inequality, the racial wealth gap, income insecurity. We can address these things using the same levers that build strong, resilient organizations. It's not magic. It's really just about uh, creating more of an enlightened sense of self-interest and tying people's fate to one another. It's a deeply... Western European and indigenous philosophy. And I think it's making a comeback. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I, over the years, had quite a few General Electric refugees, GE refugees that work for me. And apparently there was a folk saying in GE, which kind of sums up the problem with the classic command and control organization. And you don't get much more command and control -y than GE in the 1990s. And that was the typical GE person, especially anyone on the fast track, spent a third of their time managing their boss, a third of their time managing politics, and a third of their time doing their job. And, you know, that's pretty scary that only a third of the actual working day was spent on constructive work and the rest was dealing with the overhead of a command and control bureaucracy. Yeah, that's right. And isn't it ironic that the big corporation is held up as the pinnacle of capitalism, maybe at least under you know, a 1980s vision of it. And yet the style of management and leadership is command and control. The most Cold War era Soviet style form of governance and management. And yet we hold these up as kind of the lioness of American capitalism. It's just ironic to me, uh, but it should be you know, no surprise that the broad-based form of ownership is not we're accused of this all the time, actually. We're accused of creating socialistic or communistic uh, business structures when, in fact, the godfather, if you will, of employee ownership, Louis Kelso, uh, who was both an economist and a trained lawyer uh, from the 50s on uh, to his passing, um, is famous for having said that employee ownership is actually about creating many, many, many more capitalists. And I think I agree with the sentiment, but maybe not the characterization. But I think there's some truth that by leveraging the motives and, and incentives embedded in capitalism, we unlock a degree of autonomy, a sense of liberation, and a sense of 
an honor to the relationships that build organizations, even to scale. I mean, the really the largest ESOP company in America is Public Supermarket with over 80,000 worker owners. These are not small scale hippy dippy co-ops that we associate with. This is uh, a much larger organization that we might understand could be employee owned. And to some degree, sharing ownership is what has made them successful, resilient, profitable, and has built wealth for tens of thousands of people who are otherwise working relatively low to modest wage jobs. Indeed. And uh, I worked for a very large employee-owned company relatively briefly. SAIC at the time was a large $8 billion a year Beltway Bandit, employed 50,000 people. And it was 98.5% employee-owned. The founder kept a big 1.5% for himself. Now, I understand that subsequently they went and reorganized, spun pieces off, took parts public and all that. But the original founder was quite adamant against that. Obviously, he didn't set the structure up to survive his leaving the company. But it was pretty impressive that the founder, who was a company that required no external investment capital, he could have kept 100% of the company, but he gave away 98.5% to the employees. That's really incredible. I mean, that really shows a level of forethought and commitment. And I think a real understanding uh, as to who the real value contributors are within the organization. And I think it's in some ways kind of intrinsic to the ESOP model that it is still susceptible uh, to restructuring and even to hostile takeovers. Um, But it's also in part uh, due to kind of a lack of awareness around some mission protection devices. And this gets back to uh, the first segment of our discussion, which is why mission matters. If mission protection, if self-ownership and autonomy are truly important to a founder uh, or to a business owner, we can go further than just democratized ownership. We work with some incredibly exciting bespoke tools uh, that lock in mission and make it illiquid. They make it impossible or at least very, very difficult uh, to demutualize or uh, restructure a business uh, merely for financial outcomes. And so there's been a lot of creative lawyering in that space, and we're a part of it. That's great, you know, because I'm sure, as you know, there's been a shitload of demutualization of mutual insurance companies, mutual banks, et cetera, over the last 30 years. And again, they didn't have structural protections inside to keep that from happening. And management teams often did it very cynically for their own self-interest. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I follow very closely the demutualization of True Value Hardware, which is a multi-hundred million or was a multi-hundred million dollar purchasing cooperative for independent hardware stores. I was the chief competitor to Ace Hardware, and it's what allowed independent hardware stores to compete with Home Depot and Lowe's uh, to get you know better wholesale pricing. And uh, private equity firms cynically made a play to the board of directors and to their management that they would provide liquidity to a majority of the members as they approach retirement age. And they essentially commandeered a plurality of the voting membership uh, into the private equity play. Now, interestingly, uh, True Value was structured as a Delaware C-Corp and not a true cooperative, uh, but it's, an, it's been an interesting story to watch and, and to compare to the more recent uh, attempt at demutualization of the outdoor retail brand MEC up in Canada, which is organized as a cooperative and is now in the midst of litigation by their members claiming to undo 
the sale as not having had proper approval by the membership. Uh, and so while there's been a spate of demutualization in the cooperative and uh, broad-based ownership space, we're starting to see you know, new forms of organizing and uh, even new capital campaigns that help to keep some of these groups financially independent. Another kind of fun anecdote that I share, I shared this with my, my team the other week, you know, of all in, uh, insurance products that are out there, uh, the most commoditized are obviously life insurance, disability insurance. And I've gone out, I have two small children, so I've gone out and purchased life insurance and disability insurance. But the one thing that I wanted to do differently was to prioritize buying it through an insurance mutual. And so I did. I found uh, you know, homeowners through Liberty Mutual and some other insurance through Mass Mutual. And just the other day, not only do I receive and actively uh, participate in the annual proxy votes for directors, but this year I received a dividend check from Mass Mutual. And it wasn't 27 cents. It was a couple hundred dollars. And this was a dividend from a cooperatively owned insurance mutual that paid me back from the overpayment of my premiums. And I thought, gosh, this is really, really young song story of capitalism in the era of COVID, in the era of the 21st century. We really should be thinking about how we can mutualize our economy. Uh, and the ethos elements that you're citing to are really important ingredients in that. Great, let's move on to the next section. I can imagine an important part of the work you do, in fact, you have a section on, on your website, is to help founders think through what entity type might be right for them. How do you do that? And what are some of the questions that you might ask? Well, the one thing I do differently is I don't presume that every founder is looking to raise outside money. Uh, when we disabuse ourselves of the notion that there's only one way to grow a company, parenthetical, raise outside money. Uh, there's a range of other pursuits and other avenues and ways of structuring a company. So the first thing that we do is we take a page out of the architecture world, the tech development world, and we sit down and we engage in a real design process, a charrette, if you will, where we start with first principles. We try to understand what the social, what the deeper existential purpose of the founder is and what the organization's purpose is. We start with the building blocks of purpose, of mission, and of what common pursuit seeks to do through its organization. And we build on top of that and taking account of what are real world constraints and parameters. Um, you know, Where do they need to be? What are the limitations and, and real world constraints that they're working with? And we begin to design from the ground up. And, uh, Unlike traditional practitioners that might have, you know, maybe a narrow or even a broad focus on business corporations, we try to keep our options open. We remain form agnostic as we go through that process. And we try to hear the client and hear the words coming out of their mouth. We ask questions to really develop a deep understanding of what they're trying to build and why and how, and, and importantly, what trade-offs they're willing to make. Every decision in life, as in business, involves trade-offs, and we help to articulate and educate the client on what those trade-offs entail. What bundle of pros and cons should or will the founder accept? And so through that process, we can come out with uh, design-informed structures, and we can look at the pros and cons in relation to other structures, or we might even have just kind of zeroed in on one structure that seems the most suitable given 
the design that we've been working with, and we begin to optimize as best we can that structure for the range of, of objectives that it has, given the time constraints it has, and given priorities. And so we identify further what sort of pivot points there might be. So a particular you know, client might present like a, like a patient does to a doctor with certain temporal requirements, certain priorities, and there may be thresholds and triggers for those priorities to adapt and change. And so we bake in adaptability as things evolve and change. And we try not to do that uh, using the most open-ended, flexible structure, because sometimes that open-endedness will lead to the siren song temptation of accepting the most kind of lucrative short-term appeal of outside capital. And if that's not the founder's goal, it can actually be beneficial to kind of screen out or mute out the siren song and optimize the structure for a different capital campaign, a different strategy, a different structure with different thresholds for change over time. We know that we can't prescribe and draft a document for every eventuality or every potential. And so we try to be cognizant of when the form will need to undergo overhauls and tune-ups. And so if you can tell using my kind of metaphoric language, we're building organizations in the spirit of real world organisms. We're building these to be evolutionary and emergent. And so we identify when we need to change things. So the vision a founder has might be very different than what an organization looks like once it has employees or once it has admitted members. Uh, or once it has customers. And so we identify that as a pivot point and consider what reforms might be necessary to re-optimize. And we do that in a flexible and adaptive approach over time, and we grow and live and learn with that client. And we do that on a cost-effective basis and in a way that's empowering and educational to the client so that they feel they understand and have the tools to make the business executive decision split second uh, where the rubber meets the road. We're not holding their hand every second of every day. It's not cost effective or, or even practical. You don't want your lawyer making every decision for you as a business executive, but you do want to know what those trade-offs are. And we try to um, develop and build that kind of relationship. You talk about trade-offs and as you say, you know, life is full of trade-offs and navigating trade-offs is one of the arts of living in my mind. Maybe you could talk through an example of a trade-off that someone who might be a client like the clients you have could be facing and what advice you might give them. Yeah, great question. So um, the, the quick one that comes to mind is, let's say there's a technology-based uh, cooperative, um, and I'll just make up a hypothetical. This is, let's say, a cooperative of independent um, musical artists that's looking to build an artist-centered platform for music distribution uh, that's less extractive and more uh, focused on the artists than say Spotify or Apple Music or Pandora. And to build the technology and market to artists, they know that they need hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so at the outset, a founder might be inclined to say that we can never penetrate the stronghold that the incumbent players have on the market uh, just bootstrapping and just, you know, winning pitch competitions and and earning ten thousand dollars here and twenty thousand dollars there, and so they may, you know, present to us looking for a structure uh, that allows them to build and attract 
uh, a team of engineers and developers and, and marketers for their core team while recruiting artists and while uh, developing uh, distribution channels. And they may say, well, we need to keep our options open so that we can fundraise. This is going to take you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to build a technology. And so to develop that technology in one fell swoop, like, likely they'll need to raise the funds pretty quickly uh, and, and be able to spend it pretty quickly. And so you know, we have to have a real sober conversation with that use case or that client and evaluate whether the advantages of raising you know, six figures or seven figures in early stage funding is worth the downside of having uh, those types of investors part of your board, exercising control over your decision-making and uh, scrutinizing your every move and every quarterly report and causing tension with your vision for worker centricity. Is it worth it? And so we evaluate that set of pros and cons against the alternative of doing more of a democratized bootstrap, which is focus on maybe not building the technology of your dreams right away, but rather piecing together the technology using products that are off the shelf and strategic partnerships and bootstrapping the fundraising through your artist membership. And cooperatives present a really interesting uh, way to raise startup capital uh, buy in from your members. And if you think about just focusing on your core constituency, if your business model, your vision is really to develop a, a, an artist-centered approach, then who best to design your product for and who best to ask for the capital commitment and who best to design your, your pricing structure around than the artists themselves. And if you're able to target a thousand artists at say $500 a piece, that's some real startup capital and so this, the pros and cons of raising capital that way and deploying and implementing the business startup strategy that way looks very different than a venture-backed startup, but it comes with a different set of pros and cons around fundraising, product design, marketing, and business structure. And so that's a way that we would compare and contrast two different business structures uh, and look at the different pressures and tensions they create within the organization uh, both at a legal level as well as a more practical and strategic level. Mm, very good. You mentioned cooperatives. And again, that was what actually triggered my interest in tracking you down was a discussion about hybrid cooperatives. Not everybody in our audience is even aware of the legal form of the cooperative. It might be helpful for you to explain what a cooperative is and maybe distinguish between an employee-owned cooperative and a customer-owned cooperative. And then we can go from there to talk about hybrid cooperatives. Yeah, certainly. Um, so, a, you know, a pure cooperative is an organization, a business organization uh, that is operated for, by, and of its members. And traditionally, we think of cooperatives as either food co-ops, grocery co-ops owned by and of their shoppers, uh, which is very much like a consumer co-op, REI. There are other co-ops like credit unions, which are owned by their depositors. And these are what I call single stakeholder, single constituency co-ops. They have one core constituency and they provide a set of goods and services for that core constituency. Every other constituency is essentially an arm's length relationship, either an employment relationship or a contract relationship. And you know they've been formed for different 
economic purposes and under different state laws. What's been interesting is over the last 10 years, uh, there's been a real movement to create multi-stakeholder or multi-constituency enterprises. Uh, this is in part a nod to the B Corp movement, which has kind of expanded the realm of decision-making for corporate directors to say, it's not just about the shareholders. It's not just about the money. It's about these other stakeholders. Well, the co-op memorializes that, enshrines that multi-stakeholder constituency in its DNA. It says, we operate as an organization for, of, and by the following multiple stakeholder groups. And we've developed our financial system, our governance system, and our goods and services products and our strategy to straddle those constituencies. And so what we're likely talking about, often talking about, are uh, creating different classes of ownership within a cooperative. Uh, that often involves founders. We create special rights and privileges for founders uh, to attempt to get somewhere close to the traditional kind of founder status within a corporation, knowing that we're not going to be able to simulate the kind of upside potential uh, for a founder in a co-op, but we can create some level of special recognition and economic gain for them. We might have a separate class for worker owners, you know, the back office that's doing the day-to-day -day, uh, business development and tech engineering and the folks who are not founders plus advisors and uh, other consultants. And then we might have one or more classes for you know, the primary constituents. So there may be a taxi cab or transportation co-op where you know, that constituency is drivers. Um, a multi-stakeholder co-op might have drivers and then it might have its consumer members as a separate class. And so what we've created is a miniature economy for the transactions that are necessary for this cooperative to create and equitably distribute value. And we prescribe the economic and governance relationship between those stakeholder groups. And we're creating essentially a complex um, miniature economy for the transaction of goods and services on a cooperative basis where everyone's economic benefit from the surplus, the profit of the enterprise is rooted in their contribution of what's known as patronage or patronage, which is the value of goods or services that they either contribute or purchase from the cooperative. Interesting. Yeah, certainly much more nuanced than the traditional choice of either an employee-owned co-op or a consumer-owned co-op. And one of the, as I understand it at least, the attributes of the classic simple co-op is the one person, one vote rule and, you know, a single class and all that sort of thing. Sounds like you guys have moved well beyond that in your thinking. Yes and no. We're still operating within the one member, one vote framework. That democratic form of, of ownership uh, we recognize is not the same thing as saying one member, one vote for operations and for management. Uh, you know, you don't have your credit union calling members every day or every week on routine matters of policy or procedure uh, or business strategy, we delegate that through the board of directors to the management team and to the employees. Likewise, even multi-stakeholder co-ops delegate those core functions to professional management through its board of directors. What's different is that we've created a rich and decidedly complex governance system 
meaning that a board of directors might be comprised of directors elected by these different constituencies, you know, sent to Washington to do the members' uh, business and, and hammer out compromise. We've essentially simulated, you know, the equivalent of a House of Representatives for these multi-stakeholder co-ops because we know that the interests of employees might not be the same as the interests of founders or the interests of even investors, but we want to form an organ of governance to hammer out compromise and address the equities of governance decision-making on behalf of members. And there's a form of democratic accountability to that, which is the members are elected, the directors are elected, I'm sorry. And so we've, we've uh, kind of attached you know, the ideal version of functional governance with business ownership uh, by leveraging and utilizing both new and existing forms of management. Some of these are more self-managed and some of these are, are more, you know, uh, sociocratic or holocratic or, or some other kind of newfangled uh, form of distributed uh, decision-making, but others are more conventional. And at the end of the day, we've created the necessary tools of transparency, accountability, and democracy to make the system work and, 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 and make it truly accountable in ways that in some cases, even public benefit corporations uh, can't go far enough to do. Quite interesting. Now, are these multi-stakeholder co-ops supported by the state law in all states, or is this something that's only supported in some states? Not every state has a cooperative statute. In the U.S., uh, unlike in many other places, corporate law, uh, organizational law for that matter, is principally uh, the domain of state law, unlike, uh, say, securities law or employment law, with, which has state law, but also a regime of federal law. There's no federal corporate law. Uh, there's federal regulation of corporations through tax and securities, but we're dealing with state law. Cooperatives have not undergone uh, the level of harmonization that uh, has been applied to corporations and LLCs or even partnerships or associations for that matter. And so we still have a patchwork of state law. Um, and a lot of cooperative laws are really rooted in uh, the specific lobby that passed the law. So we might have states that have just agricultural co-op laws or just credit union co-op laws. Or a state like Florida, interestingly, only has producer co-op laws for citrus growers or housing co-ops for their resident population, but they don't have a general co-op law that allows for anything else, like a worker co-op uh, or a consumer co-op for that matter. So not every state has a co-op law, period, and certainly not every state has a flexible or general purpose co-op law that would allow for worker ownership or even multi-stakeholder ownership. And so we have identified uh, that there's a specific emerging uniform law called the Uniform Limited Cooperative Association Act. It's been adopted in, I believe, 10 U.S. jurisdictions. It was drafted and adopted by the Uniform Law Commission in around 2008, 2009. And the first wave of six or so states adopted a version of that statute in around 2010 or 11. Colorado was in that first wave. Uh, we've seen another recent wave in the last year or two with Washington State and Illinois adopting versions of it. And that form of statute is flexible enough to accommodate multi-stakeholder cooperatives. 
Um, and we've actually branded Colorado as the Delaware of cooperative law, by which cooperatives or businesses should forum shop and look to laws that are flexible and robust like Colorado's laws and treat it like corporations have been doing since time immemorial to form under Delaware's corporate law. Uh, we have fantastic, we actually have three different general purpose cooperative laws in Colorado, and they provide a great deal of flexibility uh, and can be incorporated regardless of where uh, business is done. And we can qualify that business uh, to do business in, in just about any other state. Mm, that's interesting. I did not know about that ability to play the Delaware game. I always assumed that if you did a co-op, you were stuck with the state that you were in. Nope. Uh, and that's why you know we, we hearken to the Delaware reference there because corporations and startups have elected Delaware law for more than a century. And the reason for that uh, is fairly arcane. It's actually because um, once upon a time before corporate law had made its way through the jurisprudence in states across the land, uh, business lawyers viewed the Delaware Chancery Court as the genesis of, of modern, of contemporary corporate law. And that was before we had any sort of uniform corporate statutes. Now in the 70s and beyond, there was a real move to harmonize uh, uh, corporate statutes across the country. And so by now, most states have a version of a standard uniform cor business corporations law. And the state courts have either developed a body of corporate law or will reference the Delaware Chancery Court law and so, you know, there isn't as much of a pressing benefit to forming under Delaware law, but it's still custom. It's still tradition. And we're kind of nodding to that tradition um, in the cooperative space say, and telling founders that where there's a strong body of law or a strong set of statutes, um, there's no reason not to look to incorporate there. And, you know, just like say Facebook is probably organized as a Delaware corporation, even though their headquarters is in Silicon Valley, uh, there's really no reason that cooperatives can't do the same and form under flexible, favorable law like Colorado's Limited Co-op Association Act uh, and do business in Iowa or Arkansas. Interesting. That's something new I've definitely learned today. I have to keep that in my working kit. You know, here in Virginia, we have a thing called the foreign corporation status. So if you do incorporate in Delaware, you still have some taxes you have to pay to Virginia if you want to have your headquarters here. And if you're not careful, it can be somewhat onerous. I wonder if their foreign corporation rules apply to co-ops. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting at. Uh, so every state has a mechanism for a business to become authorized to do business there. And it's a little bit like generating income and developing what's called tax nexus. It's 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 a little bit the same and a little bit different. Uh, but for any business to, do, to quote, do business in a state, uh, there is a certain legal test based on the facts and circumstances of that business's operation that may or may not require a business to register there as a foreign entity, a foreign entity, meaning it is incorporated under the law of a different state. And precisely as you say, for, say, a Colorado limited cooperative association that wants to do business in Virginia, we would register the business as a foreign entity under Virginia law to avail it of the protection of Virginia law. And that might require it to pay a filing fee. Um, and separately, but relatedly, it might also require them to file um, a tax return in Virginia. Uh, but that's based on a slightly separate analysis of how income is earned and recognized. 
versus whether business is done there. They're two slightly different analyses. Interesting. Very interesting. Let's go back to this multi-stakeholder form, which really sounds extraordinarily interesting. I'm going to have to dig into it and learn more about this. You know, one of the bottlenecks that the conventional either worker co-op or consumer co-ops have had is it's relatively difficult to raise outside capital, at least in any form other than very traditional debt. Could you run through a scenario where you could use your multi-stakeholder structure to raise slightly sportier forms of investment than very basic debt? Yeah. So first thing is most of these multi-stakeholder cooperative forms are relatively new. And so we're still largely operating in kind of an uncharted, in uncharted waters, pick your pick your metaphor, or an untrodden path, or an environment with no playbook. Uh, and so all we really have are the deals that have been struck using creativity um, and actual deal making. Um, we have successfully advised clients. We've successfully structured two what I would consider exotic venture capital financings of multi-stakeholder cooperatives separately. And the first thing to recognize is that you know for a startup, whether it's a cooperative or otherwise, debt financing is just not available. There's often no collateral and no revenue to secure or, or help underwrite uh, debt. And so equity is really the only thing available other than revenue. And I tell clients revenue is actually the cheapest source of capital that you can raise. It's also the most liberating, uh, I should say. But when that's insufficient or not available, then some form of equity capital needs to be raised. Now, equity in a multi-stakeholder co-op is different for a variety of reasons. First, a cooperative is designed to operate for by and of its members. It's not designed to grow fast and sell big. And so if it's designed to center the needs and wants of its members, then it may not operate in an environment of perpetual growth. And so without perpetual growth, you're really not attractive. You're not able to offer an attractive value proposition to traditional venture capital. Venture capital is looking at early stage companies that grow to large scale and ultimately liquidate either through corporate acquisition or IPO uh, or going to private equity for a sum that's more valuable than when the investor invested. So enterprise growth in the cooperative sector is not keyed to liquidity. It's not keyed to an exit. So the investor return has to come from somewhere else. If they want their money back and they want a rate of return, it has to come from somewhere else. So we have been operating on the equity financing side with a species of financing called revenue-based financing or performance-based financing or cash flow financing. And it's a little bit of a hybrid. It's it's all, Some call it quasi-equity. Um, some call it synthetic debt. It's really a form of equity that is not guaranteed to be repaid. It doesn't come with an interest rate, but it comes with an expected rate of return that's generated through the cash flow and profitability of the firm, either in the form of capital appreciation or more often dividends. And so the dividends accrue based on some metric, revenue, EBITDA, net income, and those dividends can be accrued and paid out. Uh, there are some limitations under 
state law, as well as under the tax code for cooperatives. And so that uh, rate of return is not totally open-ended um, and it has to be structured uh, very carefully under state law and under uh, subchapter T tax law. But there is a mechanism to pay a reasonable rate of return uh, for early stage investment in a multi-stakeholder co-op provided that that return is generated from the performance of the firm, not from some liquidity event and likely not through some third-party sale, meaning we don't typically look at co-ops and say to investors, well, someday the shares will be worth more and you can go out and try to sell them to a third party. Now that's possible. Um, some are looking at secondary markets for some of these shares, uh, but the the way to value an equity stake or a share of a co-op um, is very, very different than valuing the equity or a share in a traditional corporation because that share doesn't come with pro rata control. It doesn't come with X percent of a company. Um, it comes with a specific, as you say, sporty, structured gain share or profit share or dividend. And it comes with very constrained voting rights or sometimes no voting rights. Sometimes it has no control rights. And so these are usually fairly exotic and bespoke um, terms that come with these shares. And you know, in some of these cases, these co-ops are actually growing revenues quite quickly. And I would say there's no reason to believe that the aggregate return on investment of some of these shares is all that different from a venture capital um, internal rate of return. It just looks different. And, and that's what scares traditional investors because it is new and different and takes some learning and familiarity. Um, but I think we'll get there. I think we're, we're close to seeing a trend. And one could easily imagine with this kind of flexibility, which I did not know existed, you could attract, if not yet, traditional VCs, at least the equivalent of angel investors, particularly those that have a multi-part bottom line. They're looking to do good as well as do well. Yeah, precisely. I think that's the right place to look. Um, and I think angels tend to be a little bit more comfortable with more kind of creative or exotic terms. There's also a growing movement of alternative finance, alt finance, or you know, impact finance that is looking at these revenue-based financing instruments. Uh, there are practitioners that Mata um, is deeply connected to and, and involved with. Uh, there are investors who are moving in that direction. There's a group called IndyVC. Uh, it's an investment fund uh, operated by a gentleman, Bryce uh, Roberts, I believe, out of Salt Lake City or that area. And they strictly use uh, revenue-based financing. Uh, for their investment terms. And those are often early stage uh, companies that are in, you know, sometimes pre-revenue, but, you know, just beginning to earn revenue. And so I think, you know, we're starting to see, you know, the, the analysis of this, what I called kind of biodiversity. And there's a woman based in South Africa, who's actually writing a book, a definitive book about these self-liquidating alternative financing instruments. Interesting. Though I will point out to wannabe entrepreneurs, in the past I've called revenue-based payouts revenue trusts, and they work okay in very high-margin businesses, but they can be really dangerous in low-margin businesses, i.e. you could be paying out dividends while you're actually losing money and don't have a positive cash flow. So a lot of serious thinking needs to go into your financial modeling to see if a revenue payout will work for you. 
Yes. Yeah. And again, that has to be carefully reviewed under state law. Um, you know, state statutes will very often prohibit making distributions out of a company that's either insolvent or unprofitable or where the liabilities exceed their assets. So it has to be very carefully constructed to comply with state law. As you say, modeling is number one. I tell all clients before proposing any of these creative term sheets that they need to do the diligent financial modeling to make sure that these expected returns are sane and achievable. Yeah, my wife and I, on my side, I tend to dabble in very high margin, exotic software, online services, et cetera. And while my wife tends to look at alternative agriculture and those businesses have very minimal margins. So while a revenue flow model works fine for the kinds of things I look at, they do not look good at all for alternative agriculture. Yeah. I mean, we have to be realistic with what the business, the underlying business model is, um, you know, we have to avoid the temptation to financialize these companies. And alternative agriculture is chiefly focused on producing healthy food and feed for people and animals in a sustainable way. It's not generally to, you know, create positive cash flow. They're often reinvesting in equipment or in stock and distribution. And I think to your point, you know, this is really about tailoring financing to the underlying business model. And that ties right back into cooperatives, which is these multi-stakeholder co-ops are really about their membership. They're not about creating cash flow engines for investors. And so investors have to understand that at some level, their financial return is subordinate to the needs and value created for workers uh, or for their members. And so there's a degree of member centricity that's baked in. And this is, I think, you know, the original social enterprise impact investment. I mean, if, if impact investors are looking at positive impact, look no further than the cooperative. The cooperative puts the needs of members for front and center. And if that membership is either an underserved or inequitably excluded cohort, either black, brown, indigenous, underserved farmers, then investing in a business that serves their needs is in and of itself an impact investment, regardless of how it provides goods and services in the marketplace. Yep, very good point. Now, we've done a really excellent and informative deep dive into these new exotic multi-stakeholder co-ops, and I really learned some valuable stuff here today. But there are plenty of other entity structures that people have that are worth considering. Maybe you could go over some of those. Yeah, happy to. So, you know, we do work um, actually with a fairly traditional structure, the limited liability company. I mentioned this earlier, you know, the limited liability company uh, and even the traditional corporate structure, both of those can be adapted to uh, social and environmental purposes and missions. We've created broad-based uh, ownership structures within the corporate form, within the LLC form. And I think that's really the unsung story of uh, both the employee ownership world and the uh, kind of broad-based ownership world, which is there are many, many, many more LLCs and small corporations than there are businesses ripe for cooperatives or ESOPs. And it's actually fairly easy to amend an operating agreement uh, to broaden the ownership. And so we've been able to create more broad-based ownership within LLCs, within corporations. Uh, now, in terms of other more recent advents, there's the Public Benefit Corporation form, which is now available as a, as a statutory entity 
in more than 32 jurisdictions in the U.S., as well as under jurisdictional law in many countries. Um, it's the creation of B-Lab, which is the nonprofit that created the B Corp certification. And it's a legal entity form that accompanies the certification, but the legal entity form purports to solve the shareholder primacy issue. The shareholder primacy issue, as we said, is this perversion of doctrine that uh, holds directors and officers uh, to the highest legal standard under the law, the fiduciary legal obligation to maximize shareholder wealth. And it says that any decision that does anything other than or has any purpose other than maximizing shareholder wealth exposes officers and directors to a derivative lawsuit on the basis of breaching their fiduciary duty. And it has led to directors and officers making very myopic and very narrow financial decisions. Um, And it tells directors and officers, this is an analogy I borrow uh, with credit to other practitioners, which is that the shareholder primacy notion tells directors and officers that they are better off spending $1 to pollute a river and pay money damages than to spend $10 cleaning up the river and changing their supply chain. Because their objective is to minimize financial risk and maximize shareholder return, even if it means poisoning a river and killing people. Um, Now, that's obviously a highly simplified, colorful analogy, but the doctrine holds true. And so the Public Benefit Corporation form was a a model statute that B-Lab and others collaborated to create. And I worked in concert with them to draft and adopt the statute in Colorado back in 2014. And it says to directors and officers, one, it's it's an elective form, so it's not obligatory. The shareholders and the board have to choose this legal form. It's a legal form of a corporation. So a corporation can elect to be treated as a public benefit corporation if it adopts, in some states, a specific public benefit that they articulate. Uh, Our business shall be to protect clean air and clean water in our business operations, as well as subscribe to general public benefit uh, purposes, which are laid out in the statute and to operate in in a sustainable and ethical fashion. There's both a means and an ends component to being a public benefit corporation. And in exchange for that higher purpose, there's legal protection for officers and directors. And that legal protection immunizes directors and officers from considering the interests of the stakeholders affected by this purpose and by making a decision that carries out this alternative purpose and in exchange for that legal protection, there's higher standards of accountability and purpose. That's a mouthful. That's the public benefit corporation. Now, there are also movements to uh, enshrine purpose and mission in a legal vehicle that is more or less enshrined and protected from private interest. And so there are different structures for putting the purpose and mission of a company in legal trust in a way that's carried out by a totally third-party trustee or a group of trustees. Uh, And their purpose is to protect the mission of a a business, both in ordinary governance, as well as in the event of hostile takeovers or 
acquisition tender offers, and it's to act as the kind of better angel on the shoulder of a corporate board that is considering a lucrative financial proposition. And so there are perpetual purpose trusts that have been created to own the stock of a company uh, or to hold a golden share of a company. Uh, And so there are various models for using that. Um, That structure has also been used to create something called a worker ownership trust, which is uh, to create, you know, again, a business where the shares are put in trust. The trust has a purpose of perpetuating uh, worker ownership and worker benefit. And so its purpose is actually pay living wages, treat workers fairly and equitably, provide them benefits, reduce turnover. Um, it's not a direct beneficiary trust, but it's a purpose trust. And so the trustees are legally obligated under the trust instrument to carry out that uh, non-beneficiary purpose. Uh, those are just the other forms that are available and 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 being toyed with. Yeah, that last one, the golden share in the trust is one I know about. A company I was long affiliated with, Thompson Corporation, when they acquired Reuters. Reuters had a golden share that was protected in a trust that was designed around protecting the independence of the news operation. And the company could not be sold without the approval of this trust, which owned one share, but it was the golden share. And there was some very extensive negotiations about the preservation of this trust after the acquisition. And actually, the trust continued to exist after the acquisition and continued to defend the editorial independence of the news operation. Yep, that's a great, great example. Um, And that's a structure that we've used in some of our financing transactions and some of our legal structure uh, work. And there's a group based in Germany called Purpose uh, Ventures and Purpose Network. And they've been uh, creating some thought pieces and some case studies around this form of trust ownership. Um, and there are some use cases here in the U.S. And I think you know that's a great example that you just cited too. Yeah, it sounds like it could have also been a solution for the case I gave where SAIC was set up as an employee-owned corporation with the intent of the founder. But when the founder got booted out eventually, then the thing got converted into all kinds of high-powered, half-public, half-private, etc., if he had been forethoughtful enough to have wrapped the employee ownership condition around such a golden share trust, that might not have happened. Yep, precisely. Yep. It sounds like, you know, at the time, a, a fairly creative uh, tool for a pretty intentional purpose, and that purpose came to pass. So kudos. That involved some uh, creative lawyering, I'm sure. Yep. Indeed. There's another form that some people in areas that I work in are interested in, which is the land trust. Do you have any expertise in that? I don't. Um, As some like to say, I will say I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to uh, be fully educated and articulate on the matter. Um, I believe that at a high level, what a land trust is, it can be used in a couple different ways, but um, land you know, is not just the physical, immovable, identifiable parcel, but it's the embodiment of speculation and aspiration. Meaning by that, what do we do with land? We extract from it, we build upon it, we conduct commerce on it, we house people on it. Um, And so the land trust is a legal structure that protects certain uses of land by taking it out of the speculative market And usually that involves removing development rights, 
or even speculative financial value off of land by putting those de disaggregated uh, or unbundled versions of land rights into a trust. And the trust, you know, has its own kind of legal protection and legal purpose to not carry out speculative activity, to play the market and, you know, buy land low, develop it and sell high. And so the trust is able to kind of then lease out certain rights or license out rights to do things like build affordable housing or preserve recreational space or keep land unoccupied and green by stripping off the development rights and putting them either in the deed of the land or just in a legal instrument, putting those rights outside of private commerce. Um, and it's essentially kind of taking them out of the marketplace uh, that provides that degree of protection. Yeah, you probably know a little bit more than I. And yeah, that seems pretty close. And you can also do clever things like, for instance, that a group of farmers could put their land into a land trust and then do some small amount of, say, vacation development around the edges and all jointly profit from that development, as an example. Yeah, that's right. And yet preserve, let's say 90% of the land must be preserved for agriculture. And so when people buy in, they realize they're going to be next to a stinking dairy farm. And that's right there in the deed that this land is preserved for agriculture, including the current incumbents in perpetuity. So it's, again, one of those interesting forms, which has been around for a while, but which isn't too well known. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, now, I just know uh, a little bit. I live in Boulder, and the city of Boulder has kind of an alternative version of that for their affordable housing program, wherein the city uh, will not use a separate legal vehicle like a land trust, but rather uses deed restrictions in the deed itself to limit the market appreciation of, of the land and of the dwelling or improvement on the land. And so I think there are different legal devices to solve those particular challenges and issues. And of course, you know, that's deeply rooted in the state law of real property. There's something called the rule against perpetuities, which can become an issue for trusts and trust law. So whether a, a trust is used or deed restriction is used, um, I say that's out of my wheelhouse because it does involve, you know, fairly deep knowledge of trust law and of real estate law or real property law, uh, because there are these pretty arcane uh, doctrines from English and French law that we've imported that can create some unintended or unforeseen consequences uh, to using one one structure or another. Whenever we try to do things like put restrictions in perpetuity or exercise what's ca called dead hand control, there are legal doctrines that limit the ability for people to alienate property, as it's called, or dispose of property or restrict property in perpetuity. And part of the, we should understand, part of the philosophy is because under Western law, uh, and our real property law comes from the French, there's a philosophical preference for using property to its highest and best value. And so when we restrict the ability to put real property or other property to its highest and best value, the law disfavors it and says, eh, not so quick. And so even with land trusts and even with these deed restrictions, we have to be very cognizant of these legal operations that undo those perpetual restrictions. Mm. 
That's a good warning that if you proceed in this direction, make sure you find a professional advisor who knows the intricacies of medieval French land laws. (laughs) So we've talked about some quite interesting, innovative, and modern ways of doing more beneficial forms of entity construction and operation. What kind of industries have you actually applied this in or that you know of these kinds of ideas have been applied in? You have quite a list of them on your website. Yeah, um, I would say almost it seems that they could apply in any industry, any sector, uh, and any stage of business maturity. We have done this in farming and agriculture. Uh, We've done this in value add food production. We've done this in professional services. Uh, We've worked with consultancies, with law firms, with accountancies. We've done this with transportation providers. Uh, We've done this with manufacturing and uh, light industrial applications. Uh, We've done a lot of this work with food, beer, beverage producers. And we've done this with networks and movement organizers and political networks as well. Uh, We've certainly done this with technology, uh, wherein we're looking at platforms and, again, virtual networks uh, or communities of people. I think where they tend to work is where there's a fairly homogenous cohort around which we can design. And by that, I mean similarly situated people or entities that can come together to address a need or a problem or an opportunity together. That can exist anywhere. I mean, we've built you know, a driver-owned taxi cab company in Denver. We've worked with transportation network companies, alternative to Uber and Lyft. We've worked with architecture firms, law firms. Uh, We've worked with Mata and the Dazzle community of alternative founders and underrepresented uh, women and people of color-owned startups. We've worked with impact investors even and foundations and nonprofits to Uh, both invest in and consider some versions of this in the way that they operate even to democratize their own operations. So these are almost, I wouldn't say universal, but they're fairly generally applicable legal structures and certainly broadly applicable strategies. Uh, Even if the legal structure may not apply, say to a nonprofit, there are ways to democratize management or create self-managing teams within a nonprofit, uh, even if it's not a you know, finance-driven or profit-distributing business entity. Well, very good. And not just for food co-ops anymore, it doesn't sound like. No, no. I like to sometimes say that we're not talking about your grandparents' food co-op anymore. We're talking about really a 21st century version of business enterprise these days. And uh, there's been a lot of innovation uh, to keep up with the innovation in technology and organizing and political and social consciousness as well. Well, Jason, I want to thank you for an extraordinarily interesting presentation. Without a doubt, the best I have ever heard on how to use these non-traditional business entity forms to accomplish worthwhile goals towards democratizing capitalism, essentially, and maybe saving capitalism from itself. Maybe so, right? Well, that's ambitious. I sure hope so. It's been a real pleasure here. I've enjoyed uh, talking to you and sharing some of the ideas and structures that we work with. Let's hope that there's salvation somewhere in here for sure. Yeah. And anyone who wants to talk to Jason, get his services, Jason Wiener, PC, Boulder, Colorado. And again, the link will be on the episode page. Thanks again. 
Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.